Welcome to the Veterinarian Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas, and I am excited. You listen all the way through the episode, or if you just want to fast forward to the end, I'm going to start posting opportunities for A, practice ownership, and B, associateships with folks that I know around the country that are doing great things. And I'm going to do a quick read of the opportunity, have links in the show notes to those opportunities. And I hope for someone out there, it can be a great connection to find either that practice ownership dream opportunity and or a great associateship that leads to the balance, the work life that you're looking for. So with that, excited to launch that. There will be more over time as more owners start uh, reaching out, but I am excited to do that. So check that out at the end. Don't leave too fast after the guest wraps up. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting, you reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. All right. Welcome to the podcast. And I have an extra special guest, really cool to make connections within vet med. So on the, the podcast today, Dr. Kevin Lowe, who's the owner of Flint River Animal Hospital. Dr. Lowe has some great views on a lot of different topics we're going to get into that I'm excited. Some of them are non-consensus, which is my personal favorite. It's within vet med, but also as a practice owner, there's some things that we'll explore. And also avid Bitcoiner. So I think that's an interesting way that uh, there's some overlap and part of the reason why we connected. But I really appreciate your time and excited to dig into some things here with you. Yeah, super excited to be here, and thanks for the invite. First podcast, so my kids are like, "Oh my god, you're gonna be on a podcast! You're so important!" I was like, "This is great. I love first podcast." <laughs> so yeah, there we go. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. I think the first question that, since it is a first podcast, and no one has heard your story before, which AI I always loved to hear, and I didn't know that in the quick chat we had before. Why vet med? What drew you to, to become a veterinarian, and then why Auburn? And the last thing I'll mention is, so I have been a diehard Florida Gator fan, even though I grew up in this beautiful state of Indiana since I was a little kid, but I went to a Florida Auburn game, nicest fans in the SEC. They were amazing. And I loved being there. And it was just a great Saturday afternoon. Yeah. So we'll kind of go in reverse order. Auburn is such an awesome place. And even before I went there, so I'm in Alabama and my parents are actually from North Idaho. So they moved in the seventies. They had no idea 
that if you move to Alabama, you pick Auburn or Alabama. There is no, I like both or I don't like either. That's not an acceptable answer. You pick a team and that's how the state works. And so for whatever reason, they picked Auburn and I was just indoctrinated into Auburn. But it's interesting you say that because uh, Auburn really takes pride on whenever we have guests in town, a team is to be as hospitable as possible. I mean, even for the Bama people, like, all right, well, you're, this is what we do. And so I'm glad you picked up on that because it's something that anybody who's in the Auburn ethos definitely takes pride in. To how I got into veterinary medicine, I was one of the lucky ones, I like to say, because I knew ever since I, well, my parents always had pets. I mean, we didn't have too many, but we had, you know, typical dog and cat back in the early 80s is, I guess, when I first started forming memories. So they're always part of my life and I was just drawn to them. And I say I'm one of the lucky ones because as soon as I knew what a job was, at four or five, my answer is always, I'm going to be a veterinarian. And I never had a plan B. Like, I wasn't a great student, but good enough through high school and good enough through undergraduate. And my family never asked because they knew. They're like, yeah, you're going to be a veterinarian. It's just written in stones how it's going to happen. But my friends were always like, well, what's your plan B? I'm like, there is no plan B. They're like, well, if you don't get in, I'm like, then I try again. They're like, well, what if you don't get it again? I'm like, it's like, look, <laughs> I don't know what else I'm going to do. Like, this is it. But I did have to have a fallback and my fallback, I didn't want to do ag science and I didn't want to go work in animal husbandry and all that other typical pre-vet degrees. And so I got my undergrad in human nutrition, but I never finished. I Luckily, I got into vet school the first time and got in early. So I didn't even, which is kind of freaked me out a little bit too, because if I failed out of vet school, I didn't have a degree. So I had to completely start over, but it worked out. So, so yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones. I've had friends that graduate and go to grad school and they still have no idea what to do. And that just create so much stress and seems torturous to me. So very blessed to have known since I knew what a job was to do it. So, and then why Auburn? Um, just because we're from Auburn. I mean, we're not from Auburn. I'm from Alabama, Huntsville. And my sister went there, then my brother went there. And then I was like, yeah, it makes sense. Let's go. So, Yeah, I love it. And yeah, having clarity at a young age and what you want to do is super rare. I feel like a lot of people yeah. are trying to figure out what the heck they want to do when they grow up and they're still trying to figure that out as they go through. And so, as I mentioned, you are a practice owner and you mentioned you're terrified when you became a right. practice owner a little bit, right? And have learned a ton of lessons. And I think that's normal for a lot of people. They're like, oh, I just don't know about this. and I don't know about that. What have you learned? And then I know that we could spend the rest of the podcast on that. So we'll oh, sure. keep it kind of high level on what you've learned. But can you share, I guess, the journey of what happens and how that came to be? And did you know that you want to be a practice owner from day one as well? Or was it you kind of or an accidental owner, because I think that happens as well in vet med. I always knew I wanted to be an owner, but I, I didn't know what that means because everybody pretty much says that. <laughs> the joke in vet school is everybody says you're going to be a horse doctor and everybody says they're going to be an owner. You know, this, everybody goes through their large animal phase and then everybody's like, I'm going to be an owner. I know it's changing now, but at least back in 2002, that was kind of the two tracks. And so I always knew I wanted to be an owner, but I had no concept of what that meant. I've always been very independent and just as a kid and always comfortable just doing what I want to do. And I do have a dash of oppositional defiance disorder or <laughs> authority and stuff like that. And so my first job out of school, I worked for wonderful people, but as always kind of like, I'm still working for somebody and not necessarily myself, which isn't a bad thing at all. But for me personally, I was like, I got to be an owner. And, you know, once again, so I had no idea what it was. So long story long, I graduated into a job in Chattanooga and it was a five doctor practice. And Great practice, great people. I learned a lot from them, but it quickly 
became apparent that I was going to be their floater and always the new guy and never really find a niche. And so it wasn't a fit. And so I went and did an internship in Washington, D.C., a place called Southpaws. I think they got bought up corporate, but I don't know what their name is now. And that was a transformative year. I mean, I met, I think I learned more in that one year than I did four years of vet school and then about the business side too. And then how we paid our dues, the internships, we were the overnight ER doctors. And so I did emergency medicine. And I came out of that like, yeah, I'm going to do emergency medicine. That's where the action's at. And I did that for about two or three years in Atlanta. And that almost killed me. And I'm not saying that. I mean, my mental health fell apart like bad because I wasn't sleeping, which we can get into that too. I know there's a crisis right now in veterinary medicine for no one wants to do emergency work. And I've lived that life and I can tell you exactly why, because it is brutal. It is brutal on your health. It's brutal on your family life. It takes a very special person who really wants to work in that niche. And unfortunately, that niche is pretty small in my opinion. So yeah, so I got really sick in Atlanta and I was like, I got to go home. It is bad. It was bad sick. I was, I was in a real bad place. But luckily I had a doctor and he, he looked me in the eye and well, we did our history and he's like, what do you do? What's your profession? I told him about the internship and because your internship, you don't sleep. You're up for a year, basically. It's rough because like I say, you're the overnight docs and then went straight into Atlanta. And so he's like, well, do you sleep during the day? I was like, dude, I cannot sleep during the day. The only way I can get to sleep during the day is if I chug a bottle of wine. And so all my neighbors, I was an alcoholic because I'm drinking bottle of wine at 9 a.m. to get up when I got off shift and I had to wake up and go to shift at six. And so do that for two and a half years and you can figure out the logical conclusion that you're not going to be in a really good mental space. So is that a bit of a crisis there? And I'm not afraid to talk about that because I know that's also a, an issue in veterinary medicine is mental health. And so I'm open book on that. If I can help somebody with my journey, I'll talk about it all day. Anyways, had to go home. My parents were there and you know my family grew up in the town. And everybody knew I was the animal kid in Huntsville. And so I was like, I know I can do something there. So let's go home and figure it out. And I was married at the time. Yeah, think of my wife as Totally supportive of that. So we went back to Huntsville and basically, I know this is a long story, but almost, almost wrapping it up. So my dad's an engineer. He doesn't know anything about veterinary medicine and the first veterinarian family. He had just got not laid off, but forced retired because he's older in his company and they have done the fiat thinking. We can get into that. Um, basically, he, <laughs> he was get, earning too much money and he didn't fit. They figured they could hire two people right out of school for one of him. And so... So he got forced retired and he was a company man and loyal for 20 years and he had a lot of bitterness in him. And so it was kind of a divine story where I said, dad, I'm sorry to bridge this. I don't know a thing about numbers. I don't know a thing about business, but I'm passionate about animals. And I knew it. I was like, I'm a good veterinarian. And so you know, he's like, well, I got a lot of spare time in my hands and I know how to build a business and I know everything about it. So let's work together. And we were never partners. I mean, I never legally, it was just dad helping me out. And so over about three years, he had the capital for the land acquisition and the building. I didn't have any capital, so I couldn't do it. But luckily, they he had done well with stock options and all that stuff. And he said, I'd much rather invest in family than invest in stock market. And so I was like, that's great. So to this day, he's still my landlord. They own the dirt in the building. I lease it from him. So we built a great practice and opened in 2009 with zero clients. And going back to the fear thing I could talk about, I was terrified. Could I have done it without him? I would probably say no, because I didn't know how to read a P&L. I didn't know what a line of credit was. I didn't know, I mean, just everything you could think. I didn't know. And I was purposely ignorant of it too, because I, you know, it just seemed overwhelming. Like I'm just going to get buried in this. And we had tiny three kids, kid, I mean, everything, you know, how the story goes. If everything's going to hit at one time, it did. 
three kids, business, whatever. And I joke that my naivety saved me and got me where I am today because I just, I mean, what do you do? You put your head down and grind. And that's what we did every day. I just put my head down and grind and I put all my energy into making sure the client experience from day one was amazing from kitten vaccine appointment to a GDV. I was like, I'm just, so anyways, I've always valued the relationship with the clients and I never saw them as just you're paying my bill. That's all that's like, let's make a relationship. And that's just how I operate anyways. And so, and it still carries over to today. So yeah, I was terrified. That's the story of how I got going. We're open 14 years now and up to five doctors and, and things are good. If that answers your question. Yeah, totally answers the question. It's a long format podcast too. So like, I love the depth and the fact of you like sharing the struggles you went through. And I've had another guest in the past that has talked about, you know, mental health has come up a handful of times on this podcast, which is not shocking to anyone, especially in vet med. But yeah, going through that and knowing that you're not in a good place. And sometimes it is the people around you that need to kind of call you out and say, hey, this is not going to be sustainable and you're not going to be around to be that great doctor and then see this opportunity. And the fact of getting to work with your dad, like that's pretty cool and seeing him be able to help you. And I'm sure he loved that. I'm sure he loved that. He did. Dad's always been great, but the INF charts and the ENFP or whatever, those charts, like we were like the opposite. And so we've always had a good relationship, but he, he never understood me because he's an engineer and he's an engineer's engineer. And I am very biologically oriented and more intuitive. And so we were just different planets. You know, he loved me like a son and we had a good relationship, but that working together and building something was uh, providence because it really now, I mean, look, we're closer than we ever have been. And so that was an awesome experience. Yeah, I love that. You have mentioned to me in messages back and forth, and I know a lot of people have strong opinions on corporate medicine. So I wanted to kind of hear your thoughts because I don't want to put words in your mouth the way that you think about it. But the one thing that I've gone back and forth is, is corporate medicine has helped provide, I think, better wages and benefits to non-DVM staff. And again, I don't know how you run your practice, but historically, like that's been a big struggle, right? And so for sometimes the non-DVM staff, I think corporate has in ways been a positive, but absolutely would love to hear your opinion on, is there an opportunity still for private practice in veterinary medicine? And what do you think corporate has done to veterinary medicine and possibly could do to veterinary medicine? And so I never even thought about corporate medicine until I joined a VMG group, which is if those that don't know what it is, it's called veterinary management group. And if you are an owner, you're listening and you want to get around with other owners, I highly encourage you to look into a VMG and join a group. So when I joined three or four years ago, whatever it was, I can't remember. The whole premise was it, we're a bunch of private practice owners and we're trying to figure out a way to encourage each other and find best practices to compete with corporates. And so and we've had our eye on what corporate's been doing intensely. And we had 24 members when I started the everything bubble hit where money was free and they started throwing ridiculous multiples at practices. And of the 24 that said they would never sell 12, <laughs> a guessing 12, at least half, if not more, half took the money and, and ran. And I don't begrudge them a bit because it's life-changing money. I mean, I sat through a couple of valuations. I was never going to sell, but I listened to you. I'll give you my numbers if you want to give me an evaluation. And it was eye-popping. It was okay, I don't have to do anything anymore type money. Uh, but I didn't take it because that's not the legacy I'm trying to build. And so I agree with you. I think there are definitely some bright sides of corporate wages and salaries being one of them because veterinarians in general, is my opinion, have always kind of undervalued their 
skills and their services and what they provide. And so we kind of get stuck in this loop where I'm afraid to go up on my prices because everybody's going to hate me and then they're going to quit coming and then the practice is going to fall apart and they get stuck in this doom loop where it did the benefits of corporate. It, you are getting the MBAs and the people that study it and look at the demographics and say, yeah, the demographics can absorb a rate fee to this and which ultimately does drive practices up. But where I think the danger of corporate is, and we're seeing this because at for the first three years, when the corporate everything bubble hit, they were offering bonuses and higher employee or higher wages to everybody, and everybody was leaving. Not my practice. We don't have any corporate competitions around me, but my VMG group would talk about this intensely. They're from Chicago, Boston, all over the major cities. And the biggest complaint was, we're losing all our staff. They're throwing ridiculous numbers that we can't match. Like, we can't match. And I don't know what we're going to do. Everybody's panicking and can't find any doctors, can't find staff. And so... So that pendulum was swinging way to that way. And then since this is, I guess, going into four or five years of the corporate buying bubble thing, I, I could be off on that, but at least that's my time frame. The pendulum swinging back where doctors were getting applications like crazy, uh, my BMG group and me from people leaving corporate. And my theory, what's happening is, is so these doctors and these staff explain to you how I treat my docs. It's going to be from preference of where I'm coming or give you a, a standpoint for where I come from. I treat them like adults. I don't dictate how they practice medicine. I don't drive them on their numbers. They are salaried, but they also are paid on 23% straight. You know, I didn't pull out pills or flea pills. It's 23% of their production. If their 23% is over their salary, then I give them a bonus for the difference. But I never, they have a base salary. They're never driven straight on production because in my opinion, that creates moral hazard. And I think the dark side of the corporate medicine thing and why we're seeing a pendulum back is you're, and I've heard this from people that have come from corporate, so I know I'm not making it up, that they worked for a mom and pop practice or whatever. They were given leeway to give discounts to the old lady from the church and maybe do this complimentary or whatever, as long as they're making their production and they're not giving it away. And then one particular vet I talked to said that was how she practiced for seven years. They got bought up. She got a little bonus. And next thing you know, every two or three months, she's got a person she's ever met on her ass about her numbers. And then she couldn't give discounts without getting approval of some person. She couldn't comp something. And if she forgot something to help something out, it got reported. And then their model was negative accrual pro sal. And so if they weren't producing, then they had to renegotiate their so in my opinion, to get to where I was going with this, I think it creates moral hazard because most veterinarians that I know of, and they're not saying all, did not enter the profession motivated by money. Like it wasn't like I'm going to go to veterinary medicine, I'm going to get rich and this is going to be awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. If that's your thing and more power to you. So I'm not criticizing you if that's you listening. But in general you take a lot of people that have a deep connection with animals. They want to forge relationships and they want to do get, do best and help things thrive. And yeah, make a good living too. I'm not going to leave that off and then go home and be with their family and live a good life. So that's what they enter the profession is. Next thing you know, they're bought up and you got someone standing over you every two or three months saying, let's talk about your numbers. Let's talk about your numbers. And so where the moral hazard come in is, is that's where you might start seeing maybe we should do this test and do this test and do this test. And I know that's a controversial take because obviously anybody can justify a test by saying, well, it might be this, it might be that. Well, yeah, it might be, and you might be right. But I've been doing this for 20 years. And you know what a colitis looks like. Dog boarded over the weekends, got bloody diarrhea. You do X, Y, and Z, and it's better in 48 hours. Where I've seen bills where people have come in and I, 
I can't get in the vet's brain, but it was a corporate practice and the dog was a straightforward colitis because it had boarded the history fit. And the amount of tests they put that lady through, it should have been a couple hundred dollar bill. And it was over like 1600. And I was just like, wow. So anyways, back to my point. So why I think you've seen the pendulum swing back of doctors specifically looking for non-corporate veterinary practices is so they can get back to, yeah, I might leave 20 grand on the table, but I can sleep better at night. And I don't have someone standing over me saying, let's talk about your numbers every three, whatever. And no one standing over me saying, we need you to push this because we have an agreement with one of the distributors or whatever. So anyways, yeah. So yeah, corporate is good. It definitely provides some good, excellent liquidity for someone who has a practice and doesn't have any interested buyers because that's a problem also. So I would hate to be a practitioner and be in my 70s and ready to go do something else and have no buyers. That would be awful. And so it's a good liquidity sink for these guys and girls that want to sell. So anyways, it's not all bad, it's not all good. But my major concern is, since I'm passionate about mental health, is you're taking veterinary and veterinary staff and you're putting them into a situation where they're forced to produce and i would say produce unnaturally because they probably know like this is x y and z but the protocol says i gotta do x y z one two three four five and six and you're like this is unnecessary and you're basically the people you're talking to have no idea they just want their dog better so i think the moral hazard that puts them into is why you're seeing a shift it also creates stress and Mental health is a huge problem in our, in our practice. And, you know, I think, I don't know any cases, but suicide's a big issue. I'll say the suicide word. I'm not afraid of it. I've been there. That some of these extreme cases are probably some people that got put into a situation where they were forced to produce. And over time, it just ate at them and ate at them and ate at them. And not forced. Producing is not bad. Let's nuance this. But producing more than what they were morally comfortable with in certain situations. So it's a theory of mine. I don't know. Like I said, I'm going to have some theories. So, so yeah, yeah. So yeah there's, and we'll, there's a good side. And we'll I get into theories. Are you familiar with Paul DS? Have you ever heard about who he is on LinkedIn? He talks about non-competes, really an advocate for ending those. Any thoughts on non-competes? Do you view them as positives, negatives? Absolute negatives. And I'll tell you what, I don't do non-competes with any of my employees for two reasons. In the state of Alabama, they're basically worthless. When we went through that evaluation, when I was for entertaining the evaluation, when I never considered selling my practice, but I was like, oh, let's see. Because I knew at this point, I know how to build a practice. Like, I got this. And so I was like, if I could get a huge number, then I'll just go down the streets or another practice. No big deal. And then my practice manager, her husband's a lawyer does specifically veterinary medicine i was like hey what about this non-compete in this this contract and he's like well if it's an employment non-compete in alabama usually it's not worth the paper it's written on but in the case of selling a practice to this he goes those are enforceable and you know i had a 10 mile thing which in my town 10 miles is humongous and i was like eh, not even going to fool with that because that would be the only way i could have sold it. like if i could have just sold it and then went somewhere else start over again i was like yeah, i'll do that but they had that pretty locked down and so, but my employees, I don't sign them. I don't issue them at all when they come to work for me. And my theory is that why one of my doctors right now could quit tomorrow and say they're opening up cross street. And I'd be okay with that because if I'm not better than them, then that's my problem, not theirs. So it motivates me to provide a better practice, you know, as far as medicine, as far as forging relationships with clients, as far as where my prices are set and all that. And so it doesn't bother me. And so, and then. If you want to get to the Bitcoin ethos of it, 
I don't think regulations to dictate what people's behavior are, as long as you're not hurting anybody, have any value. I I can't call myself 100% libertarian or conservative or Democrat or whatever, but I lean toward libertarian as far as I don't like rules that can bound people from how they make a living. So yeah, I think non-competes are garbage. <laughs> I appreciate that. I was, really wasn't going to go there, but then I was like, oh shoot, I have to ask that. You mentioned that you didn't really want to sell and you talked about legacy as well. Have you thought about how you leave veterinary medicine and like how you want that to look? And it's fine if you haven't yet, because I mean, depending yeah. on what your goals are, but I'd be curious to kind of hear more on that. No, I'm definitely going to leave one day. I will not die in my practice. <laughs> I'm not going to be one of those. And like I said, I have nothing against people that do, but I have other things I want to do that are revealing themselves to me now. I went to El Salvador recently and there's a huge need for veterinary medicine. I was like, I can come down and do this. It'd be awesome. But anyways, back to what you said. So I got three kids. The youngest is 12. As of now, none of them want to be a veterinarian. I don't think they're opposed to the idea, but they just don't have what I had when I was their age. Like, I don't think any of them know what they want to do. And I can't even get them to feed our dogs. Like, so when I was their age, like that was my job. And I was proud of it. I got to take care of the animals and them. I'm like, oh, is anybody for the dog? Like, what? We have a dog? I'm like, yeah. So I don't see the spark in any of my kids yet. I'd love to sell it to them and do a legacy sell rate and, you know, enough where I could get my equity out of it, but also ensure their success. That would be the best way. But no, I struggle with that. And I'm glad you asked. You know, if I get to the end where I'm going to sell and no one's interested, then yeah, here we go, corporate. Let's do it. Because yeah. I'm not going to just close the door and walk away. And then, I don't know. I mean, I've had a few VMG people that sold to some of their employees. Right now, I don't really have any employees. I got one that maybe wants to, but the other ones really might be interested. I don't know. I figure I'm 45 now. I probably got another 15 to 20 in me. So hopefully I figure it out by then. Yeah, you got some time. So, But yeah, it's a great question. I mean, everything's on the table. That's why, you know, like I say, I know I have my corporate theories about being high time preference and just maximum value extraction, which I think is bad for the profession. But at the end of the day, if they're the only one that wants to buy it, then all right, I guess you get my keys. <laughs> Give me a check. Yeah, totally. Real quick, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Still going to be vet med related. You talked about high time preference, which is kind of a Bitcoin term. I know what you're talking All about. Right. Can you just quickly kind of explain that for someone that maybe isn't familiar with that term? How would you describe high time preference? Well, I'll get deep into it too. So for those listening, if you have no idea what high time preference or low time preference is, you probably do have an idea of what it is now, but you probably never heard the term. I highly encourage looking into it. And this isn't a Bitcoin shill right now, but there's a book called The Bitcoin Standard, where this is where I first learned about time preference. You can hate Bitcoin. I'm totally fine with that. But read the book anyways, for two reasons. It's A, to learn what money is. Most people never even thought about it. They just assumed it's dollar bills that the government gives us. But you go way beyond that. Like, what is actual money? Like, what is its purpose? And so you'll learn a great history lesson on that. But then you'll also learn about what time preference is. And high time preference is, I want something right now. And I'm not thinking about the future. I'm thinking about the next 30 seconds. I'm thinking about the next two days or one year. And that's it. So time is a huge preference and I want it now type thing. Where low time preference is, is you're willing to sacrifice and wait and see something out. Think of it as a long-term investment. There's an investment you know is going to hit, but you're willing to go through the ups and downs and put in the grind to achieve that goal. That's low time preference. And the way I'll steal this from Safedine, 
who's the author of the Bitcoin standard, the way he explains it is, you know, low time preference buildings, they're still Colosseums in Rome that were built over hundreds of thousands of years. They were built under a very low time preference where people were working on it. They would be dead before they saw the end of it, but they didn't care. They're like, this is going to be great. It's going to stand for centuries. And, you know, even the Vanderbilt house, look at the Vanderbilt house over in Asheville, North Carolina. It's, it's called the Biltmore. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful, but they built it over 200 years or whatever. Where now houses are built in six months and they're built out of cardboard and they're falling apart and you don't know who the builder is. It's a corporation. All they want to do is fart these things out, extract as much money, move on. They don't give a damn if your house falls apart in two years, not their problem. So that's in a nutshell, the difference between high and low time preferences. Are you building a legacy and something you really be proud of, or are you just trying to extract the amount of value out of whatever you can and moving on and not giving a shit? So that's my definition. But what's yours? Yeah. Listening to it, I'm like, dang, I think vet school is a low time preference path being a veterinarian and doing it the right way. Going back to what you talked about, building relationships, doing this over a long period of time and not trying to extract as much as I can from one visit, but saying, you know what, if I do my job right, this person's going to come back and see me with their pet, maybe the next pet. And they're going to tell anyone that they know, hey, Dr. Lowe's an amazing doctor. You should take your pets there versus I got the $1,600. They're pissed off. They'll never see me again. But you know what? I got my $1,600. Screw them. And so I think that actually is an amazing way to think about it is if you practice medicine the way that I think most people want to, most people that I'm going to say that are listening to this podcast would think about it. And so, yeah, I love the idea of the house analogy. When we were looking for a house, I always wanted to find, I wanted an older house because I'd always read like after 1970, which is a great time frame. A lot of the building, yeah. like it, they're kind what of dog shit. 1971. Yeah. Yeah. Well, WTF 1971. I'll put in the show links. I know I've talked about it before. We're not going to go down to Bitcoin yet. We're going to save that towards the end. Yeah, fine. But there are like homes that have been built and A, the architecture is so much more beautiful. Now we didn't buy a home that is that old. We got a super amazing deal and a great family that had built a home and then kind of hand selected us to buy it. And we got super fortunate, but that is a completely separate story, not applicable to this conversation. But yeah, I think low and high time preference, you know it when you see it. And yeah, I don't think there's too many new buildings or architecture that's going up right now that people are going to come visit and pay money to go see in a hundred years. But there are those things like the Coliseum. You go to Rome, you go to Europe and you're like, wow, this place is beautiful. It's amazing. And yeah, you're not seeing a lot of that at times. And it's just solving for, for different things. So thank you for unpacking that. I think it's important. Circle back around, yeah. And circle back around back to the corporate thing that we were just talking about to put a bow on it. You know, I'll preface that by saying not all corporations, I know there's hundreds of them and they all have different ethos, but just my story, the people that I were talking to about potentially selling my practice, they were quite open. I was like, well, what's, you know, what's your CapEx schedule or what's your five and 10 year? I interviewed them. And they were quite open, like, yeah, we're going to basically we're going to get rolled up and we're going to sell to the next one. And I was like, this is totally fiat. This is totally high time preference. Like this person doesn't give a crap about my practice or my legacy, even though that's how it pitches. Nothing's going to change. It's going to be just like, you're we're not doing anything. We're going to help you in the management. The typical sale is that we're going to take all the management headache away from you. And, you know, and we're seeing it now. All the consolidators are getting bought up by other consolidators, which are eventually going to be owned by Mars Corp. We know where this goes. We know where the big fish is. They just had some antitrust stuff with some of their virgin clinics, but not all more. It's going to end up three, four, five major corporations. And right now, last time there was like, at one point, I think there's 40 or you know, between 60 and 40. I don't know the exact number, but there's a lot of little consolidators that were just, 
gobbling them up. And when he told me like, yeah, we're going to present to hopefully get bought up. And then I'm like, that's not what I'm into. And that goes back into, oh man, you got restarted on this thing. So, and another problem with corporate practice is, is so I have skin in the game. I work at my practice every day. I'm a pleb. I'm a worker. I am in there. I'm picking up crap. I don't say I'm a doctor and everybody else let me know when the room's ready. Like I'm busy. And so at the end of the 40, 42 employees, whatever I got, I'm at the end of the line. If someone is upset about a bath they got that I had nothing to do with, I'm at the end of the line, which great because it gives ownership. There's always some accountability. Now the problem with, and this is coming from a person we just hired from a corporate is that there's no one accountable. She was a receptionist. The reason why she left this practice, and this is a very good practice in Huntsville, but they had a broken label printer and they kept saying, can we get another label printer? And she said it went on for months and they did the little protocols where they had to go up the list and request a new piece of equipment and they never replaced it. And finally, she's like, this is ridiculous. Can't work here. And she left. She literally, <laughs> this very large, um, we know their names, a corporation. She's amazing. I'm so glad we picked her up, uh, receptionist, because they wouldn't replace a damn label printer, which goes back to there's no one accountable there. If so, if a client's pissed off and they have genuine concern, they're yelling at the vet and the vet's like, I'm an employee. I don't own this thing. And so they're always going to defer to, why are you yelling at me? I just getting my check here. And so there is no one at the end of that line in that practice that ultimately has to answer to that. And so I think that's also another issue that is going to drive and is driving clients to family-owned practices where they can actually have a conversation with the owner and say, look, I had this experience. It didn't go as well as I thought it could have. I want to sit down and talk to somebody about it. And that person has to take it into account. Like when you're talking to me, I'm like, this is my baby. This is how I feed my family. This is extremely important to me. I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to fix it. Where if you're owned by shareholders and a faceless board of directors that you'll never meet, even if you're head of medicine at that practice in the back of your mind, you're still thinking, I'm just working here. It's not my problem. This person's screaming at me and it's not my problem. And so anyways, that's another theory I have that I think it ultimately is not going to work out too well. But anyway, I don't know where we asked, but. I love it. I want to get to nutrition. And I wanted to ask yeah. you, because this was one of the topics as we chatted on various different things that you brought up around nutrition and the lack of education that veterinarians get around it. How has your thought process changed on nutrition? Because again, you talked about your undergrad was in human health right? And nutrition from that standpoint. But since you left vet school, what have you learned? What are your thoughts on, on the state of nutrition and, and veterinary medicine? Excluding large animal, because I'm not a large animal vet. This is just strictly small animal. Everything we learned about nutrition in 2002 is completely wrong. And when I say we learned, and I have no problem saying, and hopefully some of my classmates can hear this. And if I'm wrong, they can say, yeah, yeah, you're wrong. We had, I think maybe two weeks of nutrition which if you get rid of the weekends, it's 10 teaching days of nutrition. And they literally, the very first day in our auditorium, we got a big, huge textbook. I mean, this is a big textbook from Hills. They're like, this is a gift from Hills. It was, you don't have to pay for it because we're all broke students and books cost 400 bucks back then. And they're like, Hills, Hills Corporation gives you this book. And they literally said, we got some ins and outs, basic Krebs cycle stuff. You know, this is a carbohydrate. This is a protein. This is fat and dogs need this. And they basically said, we don't have time, enough teaching days to get into the ins and outs of nutrition. Just know that there's nutrition science people that specialize in this or PhDs. They got it all figured out. Just feed what's in the bag, essentially. You know, if it's in the bag and it's from Hills or not just picking on Hills, but pick yeah. one. 
we've got it all figured out and that's all you need to know. Just follow the guide on the bag. And we're like, okay, you know, we're a bunch of students. We don't know. Okay. makes sense. Where for my own health. So I just started really hammered down nutrition at my practice about two or three months ago with tremendous results already, but I'm going to go back to my story. So I didn't really learn anything about Auburn and human nutrition either. I just learned USDA, eat a bunch of carbs, red meat's bad, fat's bad, the typical stuff that they teach everybody and they still teach everybody. But I was always into fitness and everything else. And so during college and all that was just very muscular and very athletic. And then family hit, career hit, and just I was just eating. I didn't think about it. At the point, I didn't even know the damage that carbs do. And so I was just drinking too much beer and I was eating too much cereal and ice cream and just typical American diet. Now you think about it, you know, just whatever. You got some meat, you got some fat, but still I'm eating low fat because fat's bad and can't eat too much protein because it's bad your kidneys or whatever. And so basically eating carbs, it's not thinking about it. And I got started getting fat and it was bugging me. And then I started CrossFit and it's like 10, 12 years ago. And luckily CrossFit started teaching some nutrition. They basically said the food pyramid is garbage. And, you know, cause they're big into Gary Taub's philosophy. And so I started, I went paleo at the time and immediately lost all kinds of weight without even trying. The biggest thing I noticed, and I tell people all the time, is my joints quit hurting. Like I went strict paleo probably for like a year, but about two months into it, I woke up one day. I'm like, oh my God, my joints don't hurt. Because I was like no carb, like no processed carb that is. I was eating some vegetables and fruit and stuff, but no, it came in a box. I didn't eat it. And I started to ask around other people, like, have you noticed a difference in your joints? Because I used to wake up every morning, like, oh God, this is how life hurts and everything hurts. And you just, I didn't know any better. I thought it's how you lived until I cleaned up my diet. And I was like, oh God, I feel amazing. And so that was the first thing. But then I got out of practice and the mental health stuff and still drinking too much and got fat again and all that and then finally i was like life happened and some choices had to be made and so i finally sobered up about four years ago or just completely quit drinking and immediately the weight fell off mental health got better and started taking exercise seriously again and then started just going into the podcast rabbit hole like oh, we were talking about before the show started how valuable podcasts are so i started getting on these nutrition podcasts with these people who are mds and bodybuilders and stuff that go completely 180 against what they teach in school and their thoughts would be considered extreme and wrong but they're getting amazing results they're living laboratories and so even though they're going against everything the government and the textbook says they're healthy they're happy their mental health's good they're all fit i mean they're all muscular men and women and i was like oh what are these people eating and then you know, the basis of this, you need tons of fat, you need you know, good fat. And we'll get into fat too, because fat's part of my issue with dog food and then proteins. And then basically if it comes in a box with a barcode, it's not food, it's a product. And I adopted that mentality and it's been changing for me. So to fast forward to pet food and every vet will, will identify with this. I kept seeing the same problems year in and year out, like clockwork. Oh, this dog's got pyoderma again. Got no fleas, I'm flea med, you can see his history, but his skin's trash. And we could say, oh, it's allergies. Oh, here's your Epicoil. Here's your Cepo. Maybe a little steroid if you need it. Your dog gets better. Back in three months, same problem. All right. Mm-hmm. Must be really bad allergies without even thinking about it. And we're taught in vet school that this is a, it's called allergic dermatitis. But they never go a layer deeper in vet school and say, what is causing that allergy? It just I don't know if it's indoctrination. They don't want you to think about it or they don't know themselves. And it's just, we don't know. 
And so I kept seeing these dogs. My own personal, what really drove it home for me is I got an older dog. He's like, he's going on 15. He's a lab mix and he walks like where he used to. He used to walk like he's just arthritic. And I never x-rayed him because typical vet's dog. I'm like, you know, as long as he's alive, I don't need to work him up too much. He's fine. But one day it was bugging me for years. Like, why does he walk like every joint is just trashed with arthritis? Like, all right, I'm going to take him in and sedate him. We're going to do a proper x-ray series and physical exam. My x-ray, his joints are beautiful. They're perfect. He's got, I'm like, this makes no sense. And so I was like, okay, well, obviously he's got chronic inflammation. All right, where did that come from? And the only answer was food. And about this time I had read, it wasn't even, it was another podcast. <laughs> this guy's podcast, his name is hilarious. It's called Really Tan Man. And it was a Bitcoin podcast. It was the Once Bitten podcast with uh, Princey. And I love Prince's podcast because he goes out of Bitcoin. He goes into everything. And this guy was talking about nutrition and he was talking about how seed oils are bad for you. And at the point, I even never thought about a seed oil. I didn't know what a seed oil was. And really tan man's his name. He goes by a name, but he's got a substack and his stuff's excellent. But he breaks down the biochemistry of what happens in seed oils when they get oxidized, how they get incorporated into your phospholipids of every cell in your body, how they produce intense free radicals, which cause chronic inflammation. So it all is providential timing in my book because I could apply it to my dog. I'm like, oh, obviously he's inflamed because of the food. Carbohydrates also cause low-grade inflammation. This isn't controversy anymore. This has been proven over and over again by many PhDs. And so I tried it with my dog. I'm like, all right, get in my kibble. Well, he's an 80-pound dog. This is going to be a pain in the butt. And then I was like, all right, well, it's not that pain in the butt. What I feed my dog every day is I, I order a bucket of beef tallow off of Amazon, come in a four-pound bucket. I line their bowl with a layer of fat, about a quarter cup for 80-pound dogs, and I get two cans of cat food. And it's all these brand cat food because I looked at the cat food and I did the nutritional analysis. There's no carbs in it. And it's actually pretty decent food. It's just all the leftover fish and chicken that people don't, and they do the standard thing. And so I just you know, started phasing them out of dry food and got him on zero kibble, where he's on high fat, moderate protein, zero carb. And those dogs are thriving. My kids, literally two weeks later, guys, my witness said, what have you done to Murph? I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, he's acting like a puppy again. You know, he's not perfect. He's still a 15 year old dog. So, you know, I'm not trying to, convince anybody that he's running marathons but it was noticeably different where he's going upstairs where it used to be he'd sit there and stare at him and do like this super old dog like one step at a time thing now he's like going up and down and so so he was my laboratory so i started applying that to these chronic pyoderma dogs i'm like hey you know it's gonna sound crazy but i think we need to get your dog off this pet food and i've been telling you feed this dog this food for 10 years and so that's why it's gonna sound weird because i'm going against my recommendations but i really think that kibble's making dogs sick and not all dogs obviously some dogs can thrive on it and so but a certain subset of dogs it's making them not do well and i go through the speech like i transition you got to transition them slowly over seven to ten days because you will give them diarrhea because i did that to my dogs i got a little too excited and i jumped the gun and they had that <laughs> diarrhea so but transition them and these chronic pyoderma dogs have been treating for four or five six years with the same problems it dries up it clears up and Several of these books, The Carnivore Code, um, The Carnivore Diet, several podcasts, people talk about how their eczema clears up. I had a patch of eczema on my face that I've had for 40 years that I would just assume because it wasn't that big. I never treated it. I'm like, yeah, it's just here. When I went carnivore, it went away. I quit eating processed foods. And so as me being my own laboratory, and now I'm in three months of pets doing this, it works. It totally works. And so 
The kibble thing is they had us convinced, I'm not saying it's nefarious, but it's a protein. It's a protein allergy. And just thinking evolutionary, that doesn't make any sense. Why would an animal who's a natural carnivore be allergic to a protein? This has never sat well with me. It didn't make any sense. What they're probably reacting to is you can look at any dog food as is ultra processed carbohydrates and pick a source. It doesn't matter. It's still an ultra processed carb. It's not in its natural form. It doesn't have all the fiber with it. Like if you're eating a potato or whatever. So it's ultra processed. And then usually for their fats, they don't use beef fat or tallow, which is a saturated fat. They use a uh, polyunsaturated fat, usually in the form of some kind of seed oil, corn oil or whatever. Well, those are inherently stable because their molecular structure is completely different, especially when you add heat to them, and especially when they're getting oxidized. So they're sitting in this bag and they've been on a truck and they've gotten heated up in the warehouse, got heated up in the truck. You have no idea how old they are. And so these animals are eating a an extreme amount of carbohydrates I mean, look at the obesity epidemic of people and look at the obesity epidemic of our pets. Every vet that listens to this uh, is going to go, yeah, half my pets are fat and they're obese. And we just accept it. We go, oh, just where they are now because they're house dog. No, that's not. They're unhealthy. They're pre-diabetic or diabetic. Um, they're obese. We need to call it what it is. And I've had clients where super obese dog and this one lady I'm thinking in particular, I've been to her house. I do house calls and her dog would not lose weight. And I was like, you got to feed it this kibble. You got to feed it exactly this amount. And I put it in a calorie deficit. And so thermodynamically, it should have lost weight. And it did not lose weight. And that dog for years never lost weight. Then I read this book. There's another book I recommend everybody. It's a book called Why We Get Sick. And it's written by Benjamin Bickman, who's a, a mitochondrial PhD, big brain. And he goes into everything insulin. It's all about insulin resistance. And basically insulin's job is to store energy. That's his whole thing is to store energy. And so even though I had this big fat dog that the lady was basically feeding nothing, she's still feeding nothing, but it had a huge amount of carbs that was spiking the dog's insulin. So thus preventing it from losing weight. And so, so I got, I'm getting that dog transitioned over. And if that dog loses weight, then I'm completely convinced that this obesity epidemic and these chronic skins and these chronic joint issues we're seeing is due to the food. And hopefully we can figure out how to fix that. So that was a long answer, but that's but yeah, perfect for uh, this podcast. Yeah. For any vets listening, look up really tan man. Well, there's several, there's a book called the big fat surprise that talks about why Ansel keys and the study back in the seventies about red meats, killing us and saturated fats, killing us. It's completely wrong and not just ignorantly wrong. I would say criminally wrong. She documents the history about who funded his studies and it was all big food. Surprise, surprise. And purposely omitting studies that he said that, you know, saturated fat, these people are thriving. Oh, well, they're outliers. Let's just get rid of that data. So they obfuscated all kinds of data. Long story short, that led to the food pyramid debacle of the 80s that I've lived for, that everybody needs to eat carbs. Well, surprise, surprise, that's also when everybody got fat. I tell people that I'm having this conversation with, like, go on the internet, just type in beach picture from 1960, 1970, and just look at the people. Just no context. Just type Google search picture of people on a beach from 60s and 70s. And Google will send you tons of images. They're really good at it. Everyone's fit. No one's fat. And then I say Google a Google search of beach picture 2020. Everybody's fat. And it's due to our stupid government saying everybody should not eat red meat, should not eat fat because you're going to have a heart attack, which is false. And everybody eats all these carbohydrates. Well, now... I think it's higher than 85%. I don't know the exact numbers, but this is actual study that just came out. It's estimated that greater than 85% of all Americans are at least have one pre-metabolic condition, 
whether being overweight or obese or pre-diabetic or pick one. So anyways, we as a profession, if we're going to do our animals right, we've got to figure out how to feed our pets. And it, long story short, I'll put an end on this. Just think about what is this dog? Well, this dog's a carnivore. Yeah, they're omnivorous. They used to munch on some leftover vegetables with the people that they were following. Okay, so they do eat carbs. Yeah, great. They did not eat bags of highly refined carbohydrates that are baked in seed oils and the other 60 ingredients that are on that bag that you have no idea what they are. They ate what was left on the bone and they ate a lot of fat and they ate a lot of cartilage and maybe every now and then they got a rootstock vegetable. And commercial dog food was only invented 100 years ago, 120 years ago. So, And there's no way their DNA has changed to adapted that kind of food so that's why they're all sick and fat and have joint issues and skin problems so yeah just put your just your objective brain on like this cat's an albicarnivore. carnivore cat nutrition is pretty solid pretty figured out in veterinary medicine we know they're albicarnivores, carnivores and they we know they absolutely need to eat fat and protein that's but the dog issue is everybody says well there there are omnivores and they can eat this no 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 they're omnivores but they don't eat bags of shit for their twice a day for 14 years and I just want to do one thing that has been, I've got two super obese cats that presented to my practice as a second opinion for a PU surgery because we do those. And PU surgery is when a cat blocks up and they get stones in your urethra and they can't pee and they have to do this very drastic procedure that no one wants to do to basically cut their penis off so they can pee um, past these stones. Where in the Why We Get Sick book by Dr. Bickman, he explains in human terms what causes these stones. And it's the high glucose levels, the um, the kidney cells. So every cell in your body has an insulin receptor. When you're insulin resistant, you don't have to be diabetic, but you have to be in an insulin resistant state. Well, if that cells in your kidneys are insulin resistant, they can't do the transfer of calcium and minerals that needs to be done in a healthy animal. And that's why you're seeing all these stones in humans. And I was like, well, it clicked on me. I'm like, this is what's happening in cats. Cause you put them on SD diet and all this science diet crap. That's four stones that changes the pH of their urine that in theory dissolve these stones. In my opinion, it rarely works and it definitely makes them obese. You can take an animal, put them on a urinary diet and they get fat in the urine. I mean, everybody knows that. But long story back to these cats, right? These two cats are basically euthanized or PU and they're morbidly obese, both of them. And I told the owner, I said, we're going to put them on. From right now, they don't eat a carb ever again in their life and they don't need it. They need at best food from the butcher or whatever and do that at worst feed them canned food diet and that's you know fancy feast is fine just do that and both of these cats and i explained to them that you know the metabolism of protein produces free water which dilutes their urine and you get their kidneys your insulin receptors and their kidneys working again and both of these cats are thriving they're losing weight and no strange area no stones nothing and so i treat all my block cats now i have a conversation with the owner like your cat's going to be a carnivore and it's never going to see a carbohydrate again in its life and so far, we're batting a thousand. It's interesting because I've had some medically like inclined conversations on this podcast, but again, with me not being medically trained, sometimes it's hard for me to have those. So having you be able to go on and explain some of that bits and pieces, Isaiah's like, oh yeah, I get that. Or I've heard that, but no, that was great. I agree. Daniel Prince is once bitten podcast, big fan of Dan. Tan Man, they have great uh, chips called uh, Masa Chips Seed Oil Free Tortilla Chips. They're wonderful. I love guac and they're the best chips I've ever had. But anyways, let's talk about Bitcoin. I feel like I'm doing you a disservice because we've led up to this point and we're, I have an obligation here in a little bit. And this can be one of other conversations. But you talked about earlier, I think you're kind of mentally wired to look at Bitcoin, right? You talked about 
how, you know, hey, I'm a little bit, I'll push against the grain. I'm going to question the narrative. And sometimes I think certain types of people are more apt to get Bitcoin. I think you and I maybe have a similar streak to our personalities that, that maybe helped us find it. Mm-hmm. Why do you think most veterinarians push back or don't get Bitcoin at all or are uninterested that you've seen? Are you familiar with Croatia's Bitcoin Twitter? Yes. Okay. So I just listened to a different podcast, the uh, Bitcoin Matrix podcast with, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but Bitcoin Matrix is just like two podcasts ago. You definitely check it out. But he interviewed Croatius and Croatius breaks this down perfectly. So usually a trait of people, I'm going to screw this up. He has a matrix of four squares. And one of them, you either get Bitcoin or don't, is if you're comfortable in your situation and you're comfortable with how government works and they've never done anything wrong with you and you're just happy with your dollars and you haven't really thought about it, well, then there's, you have no reason to distrust your system. And so, you know, veterinarians, if they're making a good living and everything's working out for them, well, why do they need a different form of money? They've never thought about inflation and what actual inflation is. As Saylor puts it, and Michael Saylor, if those are listening, if our U.S. dollars is programmed in a best case scenario to lose 2% of its value per year, that is built into the system. And Saylor's an engineer. He's like, you would never engineer any system to have 2% loss of anything. It's a failing system. Like if it's an airplane... And you lost 2% of your performance per year. And we all know it's closer to 6, 7, 8, 9, 15. They report their number, but it's probably more double that. He's like, so if you have a system, an engineering system that's losing 10% of its performance a year, every engineer on the planet would laugh you off the table and say, go try again. It's got to be zero. And so our currency is programmed at best to lose 2% of its value per year, but it's more like 10. And so... If you've never thought about that, then you have no reason not to trust the United States dollar. You just accept it. Oh, inflation is what it is, and it's just part of life, and what are you going to do? But now there's this alternative that has no inflation. It's actually, as terminal endpoint, it's deflationary. And so why people get it and why they don't, I think if they're comfortable where they are and they haven't put into thought to maybe there's a better way, then they have no reason to look elsewhere. Where the other side is, me, I'm naturally you know, a little bit defiant and I don't necessarily trust the government all that much. And so I'm always kind of thinking, you know, all right, that's your recommendation, but that's clown world to me. It doesn't make any sense. And so the people that tend to get it are people that tend to be a little bit more distrustful or they put in the work onto a leaky currency that we have or both. And so the people that don't get it, I think they don't get it because they've never been hurt. That's why Bitcoin's exploding in third world countries that have terrible inflation, hyperinflation. Now look at Venezuela, Nigeria, Cuba. What's that country called? Uh, Lebanon. Lebanon. Yep. Those are the higher, Turkey. the highest adoption rates. So, as Americans, we've never been injured by our currency because we have the world's reserve currency, and so we're comfortable. And so, there's no reason to look anywhere else. But these other people that had experienced hyperinflation, they get it right off the bat, and once they learn about it a little bit, they're like, "Where do I buy it?" And that's how it should be. Luckily, I'm old enough to remember that used to save your money. People could actually just save for a rainy day. Everybody remembers that where you didn't have to be a full-time investor. You didn't have to go home and study Robin Hood and how do I invest in this and how do I invest in that just to keep your place. You know, you're earning 6% a year, but when you put that with inflation, you're at zero. And so you have all these people, garbage collectors and teachers and moms and stuff that are way busy with their normal life. I think it's not only tragic, but I think it's criminal that they can't just save their money for a rainy day. 
and retain their purchasing power. They you're forcing these people that have no interest into equities and how do I leverage this and how do I leverage that just to stay where they are. And so they're getting robbed slowly where Bitcoin, all I got to do is put in Bitcoin. Is it volatile right now? Hell yeah, it's volatile, but it's going to be less and less and less volatile due to the network effects and adoption. So going back to time for reference to tie this all together, if you're going to get into Bitcoin, you have to have a low time preference and that time preference should at minimum be four years. And there's a reason for that. I mean, once you get into how Bitcoin works every four years, the supply that's being introduced to the world is essentially cut in half and that occurs every four years. And so it's, it's inflationary now, but if you look at the terminal, just study it, you'll figure this out. I don't want to get too far into that, but Bitcoin's the first technology we have that resembles back in the day where you could put money in a bucket, go dig a hole in it and dig it up. And then you got your same, essentially your same purchasing power. Bitcoin's even better than that, that if your time preference is long enough where you can wait four or five years, 10 years, you're pretty much mathematically guaranteed to A, at least store your value that you put into it, but you're more than likely it's going to 10, 20, 30 X as the network grows. And even on this day, as we're talking, Bitcoin's having a terrible performance day because of a bunch of other stuff that has nothing to do with Bitcoin. It's crashing the price a little bit. So it's volatile today. And that's what everybody points at. See how volatile you know, a year ago at 64,000, now it's 16. Okay, well, let's do 10 years. Back up. Look at the 10-year chart. Look at the five-year chart. Then let's have a conversation. So, and it's so simple too. All you do is buy it. You learn how to self-custody it. Then you do nothing else. You just wait. And so it's getting back to just being able to save. Yep. I love that. Yeah. So the price today, I looked at it before we jumped on. It's like 16, eight. And yeah, you're right. There's tons of stuff that's happening in the world of crypto. And I've recorded a podcast. I don't have the show number, but it was after the Luna debacle where it was, you know, Bitcoin, not crypto and really trying to get into that. So I'd reference and I'll put it in the show notes where you can kind of understand why Bitcoin is different. We've had those conversations before, but yeah, being able to just go to work, the best doctor you can be, take care of people and save the value that you've created. That is what Bitcoin is. It's just better money. And that is such a powerful concept. And just to give you an idea of the math, it's like we've seen annualized inflation in the money supply from 2000 to 2010 at 5%, then from 2010 to 2019, it was seven. And then it was 18% from 2020 to 2021. And for the first time since 2004, this year, it's actually decreased slightly, like minuscule, slightly. But if you take an 8% loss back to the Michael Saylor thing, right? You have a leaky bucket at 8% for five years. That is a 36% loss of your purchasing power. That is incredible. And for most people, you shouldn't have to earn your money twice. And so I love that idea. And I know we could spend hours talking about Bitcoin and we might have a specific Bitcoin like chat because I know that I'm going to run out of time and I want to ask you a couple more questions. Yeah. So if you're willing, sure. I'm going to bring you back because you're doing some stuff in the practice that or at least you've hinted at it. Yeah. And I wanted to get into that, but I'm not going to do it justice oh, sure. to come back. So we'll schedule another time, but I want to yeah, give you- yeah, I was going to say, I want to give you a, a second to provide some, I guess, closing remarks. If people are interested in connecting with you to chat on anything, how do they do that? Definitely you can call me. You can email me. My email is uh, elzonte, E-L-Z-O-N-T-E at duck.com. And that's a NIM address that goes to my real address. So I'm not doxing myself. Email, or you can definitely call the animal practice and just tell the receptionist that you heard this podcast and you want to talk to me, but I need to get a Twitter handle. Uh, I know everybody's on Twitter. And so I need to get a public one. So maybe next time we'll talk, I'll have an easier way for people to 
find me. Yeah, open book about anything. You know, if you're a vet and you're struggling with mental health, I'll talk to you about that. Like I said, I'm passionate about it. I luckily survived that fire and I was deep, deep, deep. Had a plan, had notes written, had the bottle of euthanasia in my hand. Damn, and the whole, whole thing. So yeah, if you're in a dark spot and you need someone to talk to, I'll talk to you. Thank you. Better. I, yeah, I was going to say, thank you for sharing that and coming into this conversation. I did not know that at all. And I mean, that's, yeah. it's heavy. Yeah, it's appreciated. So thank you for sharing that. Again, as someone that it goes out to a lot of people and yeah, you never know who listens to it and they might be like, Hey, a little crazy on the Bitcoin stuff, but that's what I needed to hear. Like, that's cool. So I appreciate yeah. that so much. No, I mean, I mean, you're, my, if I close up that section of my life and never talk about it, I'm not helping anybody. Totally. So I may not be helping anybody now, but you know, as we talked about with podcasts, you hear random things on your drive to your kid's soccer game that completely changes how you think and how you practice. And so if someone grabs it. Sure. Helpful. But if I don't say it, I'm not going to help anybody. Yep. Well, I appreciate it. I'm going to close it there. We're definitely going to have you back on because we're going to talk more Bitcoin. It's just going to be Bitcoin straight, which would be a great one. So thank you, uh, Dr. Lowe, and uh, appreciate the time. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me. It was great. As I kind of close again, one of the ideas of what I want to do is talk about really good openings for opportunities for associates, practice ownership around the country. So there's going to be more of these as they come up. But uh, the two this week are a Central Indiana private practice, so equine or um, kind of GP companion animal. It is in beautiful Hamilton County, Indiana. It is full-time, base plus bonus. Um, the team is fantastic. They are um, going to be a uh, AHA accredited hospital. They have six doctors and you will have good flexibility on lots of good things. There is a link to this opportunity in the show notes as well. Again, central Indiana, beautiful place to raise a family, um, good affordable cost of living for those that want to buy a house and can't afford it and where they're at, um, come to come into Hamilton County. It's a great spot. And then the other one, maybe you uh, are like, well, Indiana weather kind of sucks. I would much rather prefer to be on the beach. So what about a beautiful uh, practice where you can walk to the beach? So Fort Walton Beach, Florida. So Bayside Animal Hospital. It's a currently two and a half doctor, non-corporate small uh, practice, lots of growth and opportunity. It's been around for about 30 years, new uh, ownership back in 2021. So there's a young um doctor has taken over and really excited about, I think, what the future holds. They're growing and definitely want to uh, expand and hire. So with that, if you're interested in that position, uh, I'm going to put in the email in the show notes as well for Bayside, but it's BaysideVet251 at yahoo.com. And I will put in also the phone number. I need to get him to list that somewhere where I can send you a URL to, to apply, but um, yeah, check it out. So there also is no weekends there. So I just wanted to throw that out there. There's no weekends at this hospital and, um, it's important that they are going to get out on time is the other thing they mentioned. So with that, uh, thank you so much for listening as always. And I love feedback. So let me know if there's anything you would like to hear more about, um, or things you want to hear less about. And with that, have a great week. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment tax or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to the veterinarian success podcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast podcast.
platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.